When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Heads up before we start the show, there's a little spicy language in this episode. Michael Shulman gets to go to the Oscars now. He covers Hollywood for The New Yorker. But in his heart, he is still the guy who runs the office Oscars pool. The guy who memorized all of Meryl Streep's acceptance speeches as a party trick. What I'm saying is, he's a fan. I started watching them when I was, I think, 11. I, I have a very clear memory of watching the Billy Crystal medley in 1993. He sang about The Crying Game and Unforgiven and all these movies I was too young to have watched, but I still loved the medley and thought it was so funny and loved the in-jokes that I didn't understand. <laughs> and I'm just getting started! As you got older, did you ever get jaded about them? Or did you just always, it was just always straight love? No, I mean, I think the Oscars are ridiculous and absurd. I have a healthy irreverence toward them now. <laughs> while also thinking, like, they're important. They're important as a cultural event. You say they're an important cultural event. Why do you say that? Because I feel like At this moment in time, there are so many people who think of the Oscars as just pretentious or racist or sexist. But why do you think we can't just let go of them? They are important in giving you a window into how the culture is changing, how Hollywood is changing. And every every Oscar year is kind of a moment in time where you can see these growing pains and generational clashes that come up. I called Michael up to talk through this year's generational clash at the Academy Awards. In the biggest categories, bright young directors like the Daniels, the duo behind Everything Everywhere All at Once, will be going head-to-head with Hollywood giant Steven Spielberg. Spielberg is nominated for his autobiographical film, The Fablemans. And Spielberg, he's got something to prove. You've written that Steven Spielberg has something of an Oscars curse. But the man has Oscars, like plenty of them. Like, why why do you say he's cursed? Why does it feel like he's cursed? Well, I mean, yes, he has won several. Um, but he's lost a lot. And I think people don't appreciate how often he's lost. You know, only one of his movies, Schindler's List, has won Best Picture. Do you think Steven Spielberg likes the Oscars? Yeah, I mean, I think he likes winning. And, <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? But I think he has showed these glimpses through the years of really wanting it. And someone who's worked with him actually told me, you know, like he awards validate him. He, he craves Oscars. He loves them. I'm projecting a little bit, but I would imagine that if he was going to win a sort of late career Oscar, it, it, he would want it for this movie because it's so personal. It would make sense. Today on the show, Steven Spielberg has been blessed with box office success, 
but cursed at the Academy. Why this weekend, you should not count the so-called king of entertainment out. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Let's start this show by saying no one should be feeling a whole lot of pity for Steven Spielberg. He's a billionaire, a world-famous movie director. He's doing all right. But Michael Schulman says, if you're going to feel a pang of sympathy for Spielberg, you're going to do that while watching the Oscars. Because for five decades, Spielberg has been chasing award show glory and more often than not, failing to catch it. Michael wrote an article about all this for Slate recently. He called it Steven Spielberg's Oscar Curse. It was based on reporting from his new book, Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat and Tears. The very first story Michael tells about Spielberg's mixed-up relationship with the Academy goes all the way back to 1976. 
Spielberg was coming off the whirlwind release of Jaws, which had broken box office records, and he'd invited a documentary film crew to watch as he waited for Oscar nods to come out. My name is uh, uh, Steve Spielberg, and I just directed a movie called uh, Jaws, and Jaws is about to uh, be nominated in 11 categories. You're about to see us sweep the nominations. We're very confident at this very moment. Can you just explain what happened? Right. So um, there was a, a, a documentary being made about the Oscars that year um, by something called TV TV. And I actually have a whole chapter in my book about the 1976 Best Picture race, which was an incredible year. It was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, and, and Jaws, which is kind of the odd man out, you know, when you look at all of them. Wow. Like, that's the popcorn movie in there. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. And it was the first modern summer blockbuster. It beat the record for highest grossing movie ever made. Finally beating Gone with the Wind. I mean, it was a, it was a pop culture phenomenon. And Spielberg was in his 20s. But I guess the question was, like, does that an Oscar make? So the movie was nominated for Best Picture, but Spielberg was not nominated for Best Director. And he was the only uh, person who directed one of those five Best Picture nominees who was left off of Best Director. He, he The slot went to uh, Fellini. Hmm. But in that moment, that the, the day of the nominations, he was in his office and the, this crew was filming him. And he is watching the the you know the announcers read off the list of nominated directors and and Milos. Oh, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I wasn't nominated. You can see in his face he just crumbles. You know he's so devastated to not be nominated for best director and he he starts joking immediately. He's like, oh Fellini got it. Fellini. Oh oh, best actress is up next. The shark was an actress. You know, just doing all this shtick to try to cover over how palpably disappointed he is. This is a dark day in Hollywood. Absolutely. <laughs> shiny, this is a very this is dark, a dark day. day for our pal. The greatest picture of all time was made and they haven't recognized the, the director. director. Who made it? The shark? No, it's a matter of logic. And he didn't show up that year. He didn't go to the awards. Wow. Wow. And he does say in the clip, like, this is a commercial backlash. Like, basically, people aren't nominating me because I was I was winning too hard already. Yeah, he says, everybody loves a winner, but nobody loves a winner. (laughs) To you watching this footage, like, what did it tell you about Spielberg and his relationship with the Academy? I mean, it's just it was an embarrassing human moment. I mean, I can only imagine like the instant regret he felt at having a documentary film him because you wouldn't do that if you thought they were going to capture you being humiliated. Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> and then the guy who the guy who wrote the um, screenplay of Jaws, Carl Gottlieb, told I interviewed him for the book, and he said something so amazing. Wait, where's this quote? I have to pull it up to get it exactly right. Hmm. He said it didn't fit his master plan at all. He was going to be acclaimed as an auteur director. It was like Hitler getting to the English Channel and not being able to cross it. Oh, oh, oh. brutal, but also like so honest about what they were seeing. Yeah. So after this loss, it's not totally a loss. I mean, Jaws, amazing film, did very well in lots of ways. It's just that he wasn't nominated for Best Director. After what happened here with Jaws, 
like what happened next for Spielberg? Did he shift what he was doing to become more Oscars friendly or did he go in a different direction? No, I mean, we we all remember the Spielberg movies of the 80s. I mean, E.T. E.T. phone home. Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark. Just something that man was not meant to disturb. You know, uh, these are gigantic blockbuster crowd-pleasing hits. And, you know, no one can be too sorry for the Spielberg of the 80s who was, you know, becoming the most successful director of all time. And yet the Academy just would not give him an Oscar. And I think basically the reason is that he was seen as, you know, the the hit maker, not necessarily the artist. And even when he made a kind of uh, prestige movie like The Color Purple, people still didn't want to give it to him. And the next year after that, he was given the the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award, which was obviously a kind of consolation prize. It's like they they do this every so often when someone is clearly not winning who should have an Oscar. They, the Academy feels like they should have something. They give them one of these honorary awards. Eventually in 1993, Spielberg made Schindler's List. And this was the film that kind of broke that initial curse, I guess you could call it, with the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that year and what it was about Schindler's List that you think shifted the tide for Spielberg? I mean, Schindler's List was really an event. You know, I remember going with my parents and grandparents, uh, you know, we're a Jewish family. We all went together. It was an important thing for people to see because it was a movie that hadn't really like no other that had been made about the Holocaust. And it was far from just an entertaining movie. It was almost like a, a referendum on what what the Holocaust was and how we should remember it and how it should be depicted. Yeah, it was interesting. At some point, I was talking to my husband about the Holocaust. We were watching a TV show that had a depiction of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, when I was growing up, like it would have been in really bad taste to depict the Holocaust. And I thought about Schindler's List and how big of a deal it must have been for him and his family when it came out because it was a depiction of the Holocaust by a Jewish director who was like writing this story and telling it, you know? Yes. And I think it felt like an important movie, no matter what what people thought of it in the end. It, it was inevitable that it would win the Oscar. I mean, I, I even spoke to the guy who was in charge of running the Oscar campaign for Schindler's List. And he told me, like, basically just, duh, don't fuck it up. You know, there was really no competition. And uh, he was right. It won seven Oscars. It won Best Picture and Best Director. And that is... To this day, the only time Spielberg has pulled that off, those two awards. In the years since Schindler's List, how many Best Pictures Oscars has Spielberg won? None. That was the only one. After the break, is Spielberg missing out on Oscars or being robbed? And will the Fablemans break his so-called curse? After Schindler's List, the question for Steven Spielberg was how to keep the Hollywood momentum going. He answered that question with DreamWorks, his own movie studio, which he co-founded with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen. Michael Schulman compares the studio to a rock and roll supergroup, and that meant there were high expectations at the box office and on the award circuit. In 1998, it seemed like those expectations were being fulfilled with the release of Saving Private Ryan. Some private in the 101st lost three of his brothers, and he's got a ticket home. It's not going to be easy finding one particular soldier in the whole damn war. 
starring Tom Hanks and Matt Damon, Spielberg's World War II story seemed like a shoo-in for Best Picture for a lot of reasons. And it was not only his his tribute to, you know, the greatest generation. He very explicitly said it was it was about honoring his father and he had had a rift with his father for many years. He blamed his father for his parents' divorce. Yeah, so it was really part of his own personal reconciliation with his father, Arnold Spielberg. And um, so it was important historically, it was important personally for him. And it was, you know, a, a craft achievement. You know, everyone talked about that opening sequence, that long D-Day storming the beach of Normandy sequence, which was, you know, a battle scene like none had ever really been shot. Hmm. Um, so anyway, comes out in that summer, months go by, everyone's thinking, okay, we've got our best picture winner. And then along comes Shakespeare in Love um, in December at the very, very end of the year. Young Will Shakespeare is having a bad year. His last two shows flopped. And this was a Miramax movie, so it was Harvey Weinstein, and was basically everything that Saving Private Ryan was not. Moving in. The show must go on. The last thing he needs right now is a nasty case of writer's block. Light, it's fluffy, it's clever, it's about love, not war. It's, you know, it's about actors, which is very appealing to the actors branch of the Academy, which is by far the largest. It's about theater people, it's about women. And you write about how the how Harvey Weinstein like really went for it in terms of campaigning for Shakespeare and Love to win. Can you just explain how he did that? Yeah. So he had been doing that throughout the decade and getting more and more aggressive about Oscar campaigning. So some of the things that Miramax did were they would they would basically leave no stone unturned. They would call Academy members and, you know, say, have you seen the movie? Have you seen the movie? Can we set up a screening? You know, hmm. if there were three Academy members living in Santa Fe, they would find those people and arrange a screening for them. They would blanket the airwaves with radio ads. They'd blanket the trades with for your consideration ads. One guy who worked with him told me they they printed up this like really fancy sort of glossy making of the movie book and they quote unquote accidentally printed an extra 10,000 copies or something and then just left them in Starbucks all over Los Angeles so that, you know, <laughs> you know, they just had this way of like just cramming it down people's throats and making sure everyone knew Shakespeare in Love, you got to take it seriously. More controversially was that DreamWorks got word through the grapevine that Weinstein was telling journalists to write that Saving Private Ryan was only good for the first 25 minutes. And after that, it kind of became a standard World War II movie. And when DreamWorks heard that, they were just enraged. I mean, th they were coming for Spielberg's movie about his dad and like the greatest generation. How dare they? Hmm. So they went to the press. The press started writing about how dirty, what dirty pool Weinstein was playing. Weinstein denied, denied, denied. He said, oh, I, I loved the movie. I would never say anything against it. I recommended Saving Private Ryan to Hillary Clinton. Da, 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 da. But just from that moment through the Oscars, it just got nastier and nastier. Damn. I mean, <laughs> it just it feels like so much like about movies. You know what I mean? And the movies are important and wonderful and great. But like you just realize like how invested folks are that they, they would like smear each other in this way, you know? Well, in a way, it started to resemble political campaigns, you know, which have... um long, long and longer um, campaigning seasons and, you know, oppo research and, you know, trying to play the press against the other movie. I mean, and this was, you know, all happening against the backdrop of 
Monica Lewinsky and the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And there was the people were writing at the time, oh, like how did the Oscars race come to resemble like the, you know, the the grossness of Washington? So then when you get to Oscars night, what happened? So uh, Spielberg won Best Director. A good sign. A good sign. Uh, the movies are really neck and neck all through the night. And then Harrison Ford comes out to present Best Picture. And the Oscar goes to... And um, everyone I talked to from both sides said, okay. The Shakespeare and Love people basically were like, okay, we give up. We're not going to win. The Saving Private Ryan people were like, oh, well, of course they send out Indiana Jones to give the prize to the Spielberg movie. We're, we're set. We're gold. And actually, multiple people told me as Harrison Ford was saying the name of the movie, like the S sound started, hmm. the, the Saving Private Ryan people, like one of them actually stood up. <laughs> and then it turned out to be Shakespeare in Love. And it hit everyone like a frying pan. Actually, the, the, the head of marketing at DreamWorks at the time, Terry Press, said that she was watching from the mezzanine and she felt like her face was on fire because all the blood was rushing to her head. She was so furious because to her, this meant Weinstein had taken it from them he had stolen this oscar and they were just the 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 enmity all around just bubbled up and 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 erupted but then everyone in hollywood started stealing that playbook they realized oh if if weinstein can do this we better do it too and that's how you got the birth of the modern campaign season the fablemans might be spielberg's most personal movie yet it's all about his parents and their divorce and his near-obsessive desire to make sense of his world through a film camera's lens. You can hear how intense it is just by listening to the trailer. You always have to be the center of attention. Stop shouting at her! Now there's been nothing but disrespect from you! I'm your mother! Family, art, it'll tear you in two. The Academy has rewarded Steven Spielberg for this kind of emotionally raw filmmaking in the past, the way they did with Schindler's List. But Michael Schulman says, talking candidly about himself and his family, it doesn't come naturally to Steven Spielberg. And when he does talk about this movie, it's it's quite touching. I mean, I saw him uh, when it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. I was there and went to a press conference and he was on stage talking about how basically he... He wrote this movie with uh, Tony Kushner during uh, the shutdown, during during the pandemic. And it really came out of this almost mortal fear of like extinction. He was like, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't know how long humanity is going to be here. This is the movie I need to make basically before I die. And that's what he was saying in so many words. And then he he, he talked about how he would Zoom with, with Kushner. And it was almost like having going through therapy like being on the couch and it's very freudian this movie i mean i mean you said kushner was like i should have charged him by the hour right right you know like that's the kind of jokes they were making because it it really did seem like we were looking into his psyche in a way that he hadn't even looked at his own self but i i still i still think that he may go home empty-handed i mean when i it's funny when i wrote this 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 piece piece for slate just about a month ago I I sort of had in my head, okay, maybe you know this this is this might be his third win, his like the 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 third win to cap off this long uh, historic career. 
But now I think the the momentum is kind of getting away from him, and you know it mm-hmm. might well be uh, everything everywhere all at once, and 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 the Daniels. So I wouldn't be surprised if Spielberg loses again. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up everything everywhere all at once, because thinking about this conversation, thinking about the Oscars this year, I couldn't help but be reminded of the Grammys when Harry Styles won and the internet just exploded at like, why not Beyonce? And, you know, if he won these categories, best director, best picture, I could see the internet exploding a little bit the same way about the Daniels and everything everywhere all at once, which is an incredibly fresh movie with a primarily Asian cast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you see that too. Yeah, I mean, everything everywhere all at once really feels like a movie of this moment. And that's what's exciting about it. It's also, remember what I said at the beginning, the Oscars are how the industry sees itself. And part of the appeal of everything everywhere all at once is that it's a huge hit, you know? And it's a huge hit that's not a franchise movie, a sequel to something. It's, you know, a weird indie personal movie. It feels like the future. And it is also, you know, not a a movie about white people. And so I think next to that, The Fablemans, looks a bit um, old-fashioned as the kind of movie that would win the top award, but it also hasn't really done that great at the box office. And I think the momentum is behind everything everywhere so much because it represents a a kind of exception to all these downward trends of of people not going to movie theaters, um, especially if something is not a Marvel movie or Top Gun or Avatar or something. And everything everywhere is... It's it's an underdog, you know. Underdogs always do well at the Oscars because people love that little, you know, the little train that could. So, if Steven Spielberg wins Best Director, Best Picture, like, does he deserve it? <laughs> How do you feel about that? Does he deserve it? Um, I mean, if you're asking about my own personal taste this year, um, The Fablemans is my favorite movie this year. You know, if he wins. I think that um, it won't be undeserved, but I think it'll also represent how people feel about Spielberg as a person, which is kind of inextricable from how they feel about this movie. And when I saw the movie in Toronto, you know, I didn't always connect with it, but I always felt like, okay, this is a valuable cultural document because Hmm. this person has given us so much popular culture and ingrained, you know, his imagination has... um, define so much of our shared cultural language you know everything from et jaws all of this stuff and um it's it's important for us to know on that level just what what motivated him what got him into this and i think no matter what you feel about spielberg if you're a fan or if you if you're if you're not i do think in order to understand the giant footprint he's had on American popular culture, this movie is a a major source of information. It's funny you say, like, if he wins or loses, whatever, like, the decision is kind of based on how you feel about Spielberg. Because I feel like a lot of times with these measurements of success, you know, if you're the person being measured, you try to think of it as like, oh, well, it's not about me, it's about the work. (laughs) You know, like this is not a judgment of me. This isn't a yardstick of me. You're actually saying the opposite. You're like, no, no, no. This is a yardstick of him. (laughs) Well, I hate to shock anyone by saying the Oscars (laughs) are a popularity contest, but they are. Michael Schulman, I've had a great time talking to you. Thank you for talking to me about all things Oscars. Thank you. This has been fun. 
Michael Shulman is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold, sweat, and tears. All right, that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to go join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out how. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We have been getting a ton of support from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. I'm handing off the reins to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew. Make sure you check out her show tomorrow and Sunday. And I will be back in the feed come Monday. Talk to you then. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.